Hey, welcome to the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. This educational series is brought to you by Seattle Anxiety Specialists. Located in downtown Seattle, our psychiatrists and therapists specialize in treating anxiety, anxiety disorders, and other mental health issues that commonly lead to anxiety. For a full list of our services, as well as access to our multitude of online resources, check us out online at seattleanxiety.com. joining us today for this installment of the Seattle Psychiatrist interview series. I'm Teresa Nair, a research intern at Seattle Anxiety Specialists. I'd like to welcome with us psychiatrist Lanthi Joranvi. Dr. Joranvi is a board-certified psychiatrist with certification in addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine. She is currently the chief medical officer of Lakeview Health Addiction Treatment and Recovery in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Joranvi also has a blog on Psychology Today's website, where she regularly writes articles on topics related to addiction and addiction therapy. Before we get started, Dr. Jorenby, could you please tell us a little more about yourself and what made you interested in studying addiction? Thanks, Teresa, for having me. Um, yeah, I would love to share that. It's kind of a personal journey of sorts. I had gone to medical school thinking I wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology and ended up just falling in love with mental health. And part of it is that I have family members, my father specifically, who really struggled with anxiety, depression, and then uh, addiction. So it was really a tug for me to go into that. And another kind of feature around it was that I was working with veterans early on in my career, um, veterans coming back from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And a lot of them were struggling with not just uh, PTSD, which seems somewhat kind of obvious, but they also had addiction that they developed on the battlefield. And they were also dealing with um, those co-occurring kind of disorders that we see. So this, this all kind of came together for me and really spurred me to go ahead and do a little bit more training. And that's why I went into addiction. And being in addiction really just feels like exactly where I need to be. It, it, it's a field that I love. It's very challenging. And it's an addiction that affects everybody in that person's life. So the family members, loved ones, partners, uh, it really is wide ranging. So when you help that one person, you're helping several more people that are in that life as well. That's wonderful. It sounds like you've really found your calling. You know, you mentioned how um, you can tell that it's what you should be doing, right? It feels right. So. It really does. It feels, it feels like uh, just where I should be. Especially during the pandemic, we, um, that, that obviously is uh, something I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later too, but with COVID, we have seen such a spike of people struggling with relapses and overdose rates are sky high, higher than we've ever seen. And so knowing that here I am in this treatment center, not having any clue that we're, we're going to be facing something unprecedented and then being at the forefront, being able to through a time that, that the history of the world really haven't seen at this level before. It's, it's very rewarding. I'm glad that you, you found that way to make a difference and have a positive impact. Um, since we are a psychotherapy practice specializing in treating anxiety, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between anxiety and addiction 
And if individuals who suffer from anxiety are at a higher risk of taking on addictive behavior? I think that's a great question. So one of the things that we see a very high rate of here is what I mentioned earlier, co-occurring disorders. And those are disorders like anxiety disorders or depressive disorders that go hand in hand with addiction. So a lot of our patients, I'd say at least 50%, sometimes higher, have something else going on. So they're coming in for primarily, let's say, alcohol problems or addiction to heroin or something else. But they also have these underlying conditions that really, if you are not aware of what you do treat, they will have a lot harder time into recovery, being able to prevent relapses. And so that definitely is a big issue. What I what I know is that, for instance, our female population, we see about 75% of them have uh, trauma. And trauma, I know the DSM kind of waffles about this diagnosis being an anxiety disorder specifically, but for me, it is an anxiety disorder. It's an anxiety of, or disorder of heightened awareness, um, difficulty with their environment, difficulty with relaxing and being able to connect with others. And so when we have this high level of trauma in our female population, being able to prepare that and address it while they're also getting treated for their alcohol use disorder or their opiate use disorder is just super critical. Uh, and then if we look at, for instance, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, we see high correlations with, for instance, alcohol and sedatives. And if you look at the data, for instance, social anxiety disorder has a high kind of hand in hand with alcohol. There's popular TV shows and movies about people that have such social or crippling social anxiety that they have to have a drink in their hand to be able to go to a party or meet somebody new. And that becomes a behavior often that can lead to addiction. And so we are very aware here where I work that you really need to look for and be aware of other conditions like social anxiety, like panic disorder, PTSD, to really get to the root of, of issues. That's interesting. I have seen that on shows before. It's almost kind of modeling yeah. that that's how you deal with anxiety is have a drink in your hand. Or... One of my, yeah, one of my favorite shows is The Big Bang Theory off now, but they have Me that too. character. And that's, that's, that's the only way you can talk to women is he has to have some alcohol in his system. And it's kind of a running joke, but towards the end of the show, they do show that he starts to get in trouble with, with alcohol. And it, and it isn't, I don't think, anywhere to the level of addiction, but he, he is becoming kind of progressively becoming uh, a pattern for him, that kind of behavior. And, it, and it's no longer the effective coping tool. It's become a, 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 some, a behavior that's really causing him some trouble. And so that when I think about addiction and I feel like this is a message that, that kind of gets lost. It's a progressive disease. And so for the patients I treat, a lot of them may have started out with something like alcohol or marijuana that wasn't initially problematic, but you add in stressors or bad coping skills or um, even co-occurring disorders that might develop and it eventually becomes a problem you can't avoid. So I just feel like that's a very important message to share. You know, something else, I mean, kind of speaking about uh, anxiety disorders, especially with addiction, is kind of the idea of perfectionism. There is a um, is an interesting article I read in the Atlantic, and this was actually pre-COVID. They talked about 
women specifically who get um, kind of caught up in maybe alcohol addiction. And one of the things that's still out there, this myth of the superwoman, um, she can do everything. She can have a full-time high-powered career. She can have a full a family at home, take care of the children, be at the soccer game, go to the board meeting. Uh, and then they kind of, this article kind of connected all of that, those demands on women now with the idea that, okay, when they get home at the end of the day and they're making dinner for the entire family and still multitasking, they're going to have a glass of wine. And then maybe that leads to another glass. So there is this connection of these demands that, that we put on people in society, women specifically, that kind of are, if you kind of go down that road, seem to be connected with patterns with alcohol, for instance. And I'm not saying every successful woman that's trying to do everything is going to end up with substance use problems, but more and more through the pandemic, we've seen women coming in seeking treatment with those kind of behaviors in the environment in their life. And I think just following that context, I think we're going to see this more and more as we get past COVID. Speaking of that, um, you know, and you mentioned a little bit about the relationship between trauma and addiction, and you've talked a little bit about COVID and addiction. Um, you know, we've gone through such major historic events lately. It's been referred to in some articles as a cascade of collective trauma between COVID-19 and increasing political tension, racial tension, economic instability. Um, are you seeing in general an increase or any type of um, relationship between what's currently happening and addiction in your office? So yes, that is interesting. What we saw in the midst of COVID, we go back to about 2020, and even last year, people were still coming into treatment, but I think there was a delayed response. Uh, kind of like they were still in survival mode and they weren't really recognizing all of what you just listed. You're right, unprecedented global pandemic, all this political unrest, violence, and, you know, um, tension. And so now that we are, and I'm certainly not saying we're in past COVID, but it has taken on, um, it, it has kind of shifted our focus a bit. And now what I'm seeing here in the treatment facility, I'm at, and I do talk to other colleagues in other areas of the country, they're seeing the same thing. Now there's this big rush to get into treatment. People are starting to recognize that two years later, their behaviors or their addictive um, patterns are, are no longer working. It's like that progressive disease I mentioned earlier. In the thick of it, I feel like um, people weren't quite recognizing it. And now that we're getting a little perspective, a little bit of distance from COVID, people are recognizing now, wow, this has just been tremendously hard on myself, on my family, on my, on my network, and I need help. And so that is good to see um, that, that recognition. It's hard though, because I mentioned earlier around 75% of the women we see seeking help are, are traumatized. And now we're seeing a higher uptick with our male population, um, younger adults in their early um, 20s or late teens are also struggling. And I do think the social isolation that came from COVID uh, the kind of heightened use of substances to manage all of our, you know, kind of collective stress and trauma is starting to show. It's, it's really starting to manifest now. That's really interesting. So is that because people kind of thought they were just doing these things temporarily to cope? You know, they're stuck at home. There's a lockdown. 
and then they find when all of that's over and they're trying to return to normal life that it's maybe harder to quit than they thought they it was? It is. Uh, one of the things that I've talked a lot about over the last year um, is that you have people that have been working from home, those Zoomers, um, and, and one of the things about Zooming and, and working from home is that it, it sometimes is easier to hide your substance use. Bosses and drink at work, you can put your camera off, which I think in this time and age is kind of a sign that either you didn't get up early enough to put on makeup or, you know, maybe there is something more serious going on. And so initially, I think that a lot of us um, ended up kind of just thinking, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to stay forever. And then it kind of did. And now we're, we're looking back on it and we're coming back in the office. And I, I read all the time about companies that are struggling to get employees back and, and some of the bumps in the road. And I think that is what we're seeing now is that people hunker down for two years, develop some habits that weren't healthy. And now they're realizing that those don't work now that you're back in the in kind of more of a normal time or a normal environment and so that's that's where they end up seeking some help that's really interesting i yeah i think we're definitely in unprecedented times right and and so everyone's trying to figure out and cope and and figure out how to return to some semblance of normalcy right i agree and i think you know, this is my own kind of opinion. I'm not basing it on research, but I think we need to take stock of these last two years and understand that life is precious. Uh, life, there are a lot of good things in life. We've lost a lot of people that we love. And so to take each moment that we have here and just make it meaningful, um, you know, engage in something that you find enjoyable, uh, whether it be art or nature, you know, just take that moment because we're not really promised what's next week or even tomorrow. And so really understanding that because COVID, I feel like all oh, of the terrible things that happened, that, that kind of shed a light on, on, on our national um, kind of work, you know, our work balance in life and understanding what's important. That's a good point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people reevaluating what what is most yeah. important, right? It exactly. made us all face our, you know, face what matters most in life and reconsider our priorities. Um, switching gears a little bit, you had written an article recently about the benefits of ketamine with alcohol addiction. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about recent research with that and why you think that that's a beneficial treatment method. Well, I would say, I wouldn't necessarily say it's gotten to the point where it's beneficial for and so if you look at the history of ketamine, it evolved from an anesthetic that was used in the battlefield to a club drug that was abused in the 80s and 90s to a therapeutic uh, drug now in the, in the psychiatry case. And the therapeutics of it are, are pretty well studied for depression. And in fact, the FDA has approved a um, male form of therapy that shows the benefits for people that have depression that's what we call refractory, meaning they've been trying to murder antidepressants or even those people that have it's cutting out a little bit. I'm sorry, could you repeat yeah. that? It's a little yeah, hard. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I know I feel I hear a little bit of an echo too. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Um what I was saying is that the FDA has looked at and approved an inhaled form of ketamine that that looks to be beneficial for people with refractory depression. 
Okay. Meaning that they've been on a lot of other medications that haven't worked. Uh, and it's also very, it appears to be pretty effective for people that have chronic suicidality. Uh, so we have seen this ketamine go from one type of neck injury in anesthesia to an abuse and now to a therapeutic. So some of the more recent ketamine shows that there may be some benefit for addiction. And a lot of the research right now, most of it in the area of what we are finding out is that ketamine can cure it with therapy. Uh, it can be you know, some really interesting data. People are, are able to stay sober longer or they're able to inter interact better with their therapies to address the addiction or to address the disorders. Uh, and so it's really interesting. I don't, you know, one of the things about ketamine, of course, is what I mentioned earlier, usable. Uh, people can get addicted. It's not as common as other drugs, but there is kind of this fine balance. So if we're going to use it to treat people that have an addiction, we really have to be very careful about who we're choosing to use ketamine on. Um, that has to be, you have to be aware of, of things like trauma in that person's in, in, in that person's past or in their current issues. You have to be aware of how they cope with, with life, their coping strategies, their support system. Because if you introduce something that is addictive and they don't have some of those other things in place, it can cause more problems than you look for. Um, and then the other thing I think really that I came away with looking at the research is therapy is, is really key to this. You can't do anything in isolation. Ketamine is not that quick fix that we're all, I think, looking for. Um, just like, you know, an antidepressant isn't a quick fix either. I firmly believe that Medicines can be very helpful, but if you're not pairing them with change, whether that change is being navigated with a therapist or with um, a, someone else that's helping person, someone support them or change their coping styles, you're not going to get as far as you need to. And so that's where I think the real message is, is that ketamine looks exciting for this population, but there's more data to learn. And I think ultimately we're going to use it in conjunction with a lot of other tools in the toolbox. So, um, to another topic I wanted to discuss, where in a recent article, the aha moment in addiction treatment, an article that you had written, you talk about how once individuals get through the detox phase, the real work can begin, but people are often terrified at that point. Um, so how do you work with individuals to get past that point um, when they, they have detox and then they're just kind of terrified? How do you get them to move forward? What I really love to see is that people do kind of absolutely fingernails on them, you know, just clinging to the side of the cliff. And it's scary, especially if you have no history of, of treatment before. So this is brand new. What we really find helpful is peers. People that have been in the facility a little bit longer, been in treatment a little longer, who can help them navigate, who can really speak to them with credibility, knowing that they've been down that same road. We also engage family. I think family is so important. They are often the reason people come to treatment. The family member is giving them an ultimatum, uh, whether it's a husband or a partner or a parent. And so they're here somewhat un unwilling to be here or against the will. And when you engage family, it can be very impactful. And in fact, a lot of times to get people past that terror moment, we will ask family to send us 
um, impact statement, things that tell that loved one that's in treatment. I, I you know, I, I was so proud of you. I'm so glad you're in treatment. This is why, because in the past, we have struggled with seeing you hurt yourself. Um, we have struggled with seeing your health go down. You have not been present with us and we love you. And so having family in can be very, uh, very powerful because they're a big reason these folks come into treatment. And then just having them understand, and, and I do this a lot with our medical team, is just having them kind of walking them through the medical piece of it because a lot of times they may not be aware that their liver function is not doing as well, or they may not be aware they've developed an anemia because of their alcoholism. And so going through kind of the kind of the, um, the clear basics about that. And then finally, I always like to encourage folks, this is a fine balance, but really encourage them to understand being in treatment and having an addiction doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't mean they have a character flaw or something wrong with their personality. But they've, they've really developed, unfortunately, a progressive disease, and it's disease of brain activity. And so kind of destigmatizing it some can help them really engage. You were just mentioning um, the importance of involving family. Uh, and often if a family member or a loved one you know, has someone in their life uh, with addiction, they're told to take them to detox or to take them to rehab and to get treatment. Do you find that if a person is coerced into going and seeking treatment and they're just kind of going for a family member that it's beneficial? Um, you know, is that the best approach for family members to take if they have loved ones with addiction? I, I think it's a fine line. Honestly, people that come in with family coercion, they do very well as much as the folks that are coming in um, on their own. But I think it's really a surrender moment. If those folks are being coerced or, you know, somewhat encouraged strongly to come into treatment, often they, they kind of get fixated on, okay, I'm only here because my husband said that, you know, he's going to file for divorce. Getting them to go beyond that and just surrender and see all the other things that are happening in their lives beyond just feeling like someone's turned on them uh, is really important. I, you know, I speak with the kind of the experience of having a loved one who had an addiction and it's hard to sit down with that person, especially if it's a parent and just say, you know, I'm so worried about you. This is what I'm seeing X, Y, and Z. Please go to treatment because it, it feels in some ways, a lot of times that person's going to take it as a betrayal. And so you have to kind of separate yourself from that feeling and just do the best that you know for that person and getting them into treatment is the best thing. You know, if you think about, this is the way I see addiction is often that person's been taken hostage by the drug or the alcohol. And you have to kind of be that hostage negotiator and try and get them freed. And sometimes the only way to do that is to get them into some form of treatment inpatient. It doesn't always have to be inpatient, but often it does. And that's where the real work starts. Um, it's tough. I mean, it's really an individual case by case, but I think both sides can be very successful. The person that comes in separately and then the person that comes with family. Okay, so that's interesting. So you don't necessarily have to wait for that person to realize on their own that they have a problem. I, I we have a um, a young woman here now who I'm so proud of. She came on her own, and what she shared with me a few days ago was that her family just took a collective 
sigh of relief when she told them that she was going in because they were ready to interview and they um they were just so worried about her she was doing some really dangerous things so it's great when they have the insight like that um when, when someone can see okay this is really unhealthy i'm starting to understand but no, they don't always get there and so that's where you kind of have to take that initiative Okay. Well, I think that's good for people to know that it can still be beneficial, even if you're kind of pushing somebody to go in for treatment. Absolutely. Uh, another thing you've written about are the changes in the brain that take place during addiction. I'm wondering um, if when somebody goes through recovery, if you see those changes reversed or if there are any other changes within the brain that occur when somebody has gone through treatment, like do you see a reversal in the trends that had occurred during addiction? Yes, we actually do. Usually those changes start to show up around 30, really, I want to say 30, but up to 90 days is really where the beginning stages of change start to happen. We see it with their behaviors kind of that aha moment I mentioned earlier in, in, the, in the blog I wrote, they kind of, you just see everything click for them. They start to engage in the groups. They're starting to show positive peer relationships. They're um, often voted by their peers to lead uh, for the week. And so those are really positive things to see and it's so rewarding, uh, but it can take some time. And the, and the reason is if you get into some of the science behind it, the brain is part of that reward center of the brain that can be taken over by drugs and alcohol. So that, that individual thinks they need a chemical to survive. They need heroin or they need alcohol or they need a Xanax to just survive day to day. So it's going to take some time to take that part of the brain back and also rewire it. Not to get too technical, but we know that neurotransmitters are unbalanced. We know that particular pathways are affected and, and injured during addiction. And so to really rewire all of those pathways and rebalance the chemicals, we see that it even takes up to a year to 18 months. But in that first 90 days is really where you start to see the behaviors manifest. And uh, I think that's, that's what keeps all of us in this field is that when we see people change and their lives get better, and then their families come in for the family workshops, and they see the changes, it, it just can be so transformative for the whole system. That's wonderful. I'm sure that's, you know, just a great experience to be able to see somebody come back, right? Come back to who they are. And Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. Great. Um, did you have any other parting words or advice or anything you would like to share with our audience? I, you know what, I think my, you know, I, I feel like education is so important for addiction in the field. And for so many years, you know, even 20, 30 more years or longer, it's been a field that has a lot of stigma to it. People are ashamed to tell someone that they have an alcohol problem, or they're ashamed to tell someone that their family member might have, a, you know, a problem with addiction. And so really getting education out there about what addiction is, how it affects the brain, uh, destigmatizes this. And when you destigmatize treatment, more people go. I think it's, you know, I'm going to call out some celebrities, people like Demi Lovato, or, um, you know, some popular stars that have a lot of recovery, like Eminem or Pink. Um, and they've been very vocal about all of their, their struggles and how they went to treatment and how they got healthy. 
really helps in some ways. It's obviously um, very alluring to see stars getting help because we're all fixated on gossip and stars. But it's also really rewarding for me to see this because um, it, it, the general population sees them and thinks that they're so successful, but they don't understand that these people have also fallen um, prey to addiction or to mental health issues. And so they see them getting help that kind of destigmatizes it so they can go and get help too. I think that's a great point. I think there are a lot of people who still want to keep these things as a family secret, you know, not discussing it happened in my family. Yeah. And, and it's just, it, it, it goes on and on. And so you have to break that, that, um, that pattern in your own family and just be very, um, very willing to kind of break down these barriers because people, this is a treatable disease. You know, if I were to say one more thing about this, and I could say many more things, but if I could say one more thing, this is a disease that's treatable. People can get healthy and live healthy lives and be happy. Uh, it's not the end of the world, but they have to get into treatment first to do it. I think that's an important point that it can, it, it can. I don't know about cured, if that's the correct word, but you can get past it. You can move on from it. And there there is what I love to see. Yeah, we have a very strong alumni group that um, they have their own private Facebook page. But periodically, some of our staff will share um, just some positive stories that come out of the alumni group. And it's so nice to hear because people will say, I've had five years sober, I've had 10 years sober. Um, And they, they, they will even have like little clocks on their phone and it'll show the the days that they've been they've been in recovery it's great because they have transformed their lives it is great it it just it has me thinking one more thing i kind of like to ask you here last minute um do you have advice if somebody is seeking for a program as to what types of programs they should look for i know you hear sometimes that maybe some treatment programs might just be scams. You know, what what should a person look for if they're looking for a successful treatment program? I think you want to make sure that it's um, accredited by JCO or Joint Commission. I think that's very important because that is a um, organization that goes around the country and looks at facilities to make sure they have the basic elements of treatment. So that means nursing care, physician or provider medical care, therapy. Um, that they're meeting standards. So I think that's very important. I also think it's important to have a a strong medical presence at the facility because people that are coming into treatment with addiction often have medical issues that need to be addressed, whether it be a liver disease or infections or problems with um, heart disease. There's a lot of different things that go hand in hand with addiction. And so you want to be able to treat those medical conditions. And then being a psychiatrist myself, I feel like having a very strong mental health presence in that facility. And so having someone that's going to treat co-occurring disorders and evaluate uh, for more serious conditions and be able to treat them is also critical. Thank you. That's wonderful advice. I appreciate you speaking with us today. And thank you for, for participating in our interview series. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.